Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks coming to you this Thursday morning, talking to you about cooperatives. The show is called Everything Cooperative. And this morning, we're excited because we have Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimrod on the show for this morning. She has written a book called Collective Carriage, a history of African-American cooperative economic thought and practice. Good morning, Jessica. Yes, good morning. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for taking out time to be with us this morning. You know, let's get right into how I understand it took you 10 years to write this book. <laughs> yeah, at least. <laughs> okay. What were some of the major things that you learned about this cooperative economics, this cooperative business model? Right. Well, one of the things I learned, which is why it ended up taking 10 years, is that there was a very long and strong history, but a hidden history. So I kept on, I've been uncovering more and more things. In fact, I'm still uncovering stuff now, even after the book's been published. So the very, you know, the first thing is I thought, you know, maybe I'd find a few things and just show that there was some kind of history. And then I found out that there's just this extensive history, basically every period of time um, since African Americans ended up on this continent uh, till now, uh, we've had some kind of cooperative economic practice. Sometimes uh, there have been periods of a lot more activity and sometimes less activity. Often that was because of either economic conditions or um, we didn't always have organizations promoting and helping with the development. The other thing I think I would say that I learned is there's a strong role for black women. Um, I guess black women have pretty much been involved in all the movements in African-American history, but I didn't know until I started looking into it that the black women often were the ones pushing and promoting and making sure the co-ops happened and survived, that kind of thing. So that's also um, been a great find. And then um, I'm now calling the African-American Civil Rights Movement the silent partner to the long civil rights movement because pretty much all the different, not just the 60s civil rights, but all the different movements for black liberation also included, often quietly, a strategy for economic cooperation to lead to more economic independence as well as more sharing of the wealth in the African-American community. Wow, that's a lot. That is a lot. <laughs> okay. Because what I'm wanting us to do today is to take what you've learned about history and see how we can make it apply in today's world. And I have also found that in most of these are affordable housing co-ops, all except one out of maybe 14 properties have been women-run, mostly women as presidents and mostly women on the board. So I, I have noticed that also. Right. Um, but it's like... But you know, there was a study, I think, out of Emory in um, Atlanta several years ago that actually they studied... Uh, what's it, the dopamine levels in people and black women and women in general got more dopamine higher on cooperating than men did, even though men also got some dopamine from cooperating. <laughs> so no one really followed up on that study, but it is interesting, I think, uh, that women seem to really thrive on cooperating. What is dopamine? Oh, that's the um, endorphins in the human body that make us feel high and happy. Oh, so you don't need alcohol or right. no, mar you just marijuana. Need to cooperate. Right. <laughs> so if you cooperate, <laughs> you can feel better. Yes. Yeah, and, I don't know why no one ever followed up on that study, but anyway. Oh, no, I like that study because... Um, yeah, I think it was in the New York Times, but it would have been, oh, gosh, like nine or ten years ago now. So you can feel good about stuff and feel great about if you cooperate right the act of cooperating sharing and working with other people and apparently at least the first study showed women get even more endorphins than men from this but um, both get some well i often wonder why we don't have more cooperatives because the studies that i have seen and read about housing co-ops there's less foreclosures, uh, the, the rents are lower, the properties are in, kept in better shape, uh, people feel better about themselves and their community, they 
they thrive better in, in the in the cooperative and it's mainly affordable housing cooperatives. I'm talking about these studies have been done on. So you look at every aspect. Oh, they also create wealth. Yeah. Every aspect of life, they're better. So why aren't there more? And you said in some parts of history, some over time, you see more activity in co-ops and then sometimes less. Uh, do you right. have any sense of why we don't have more co-ops? Oh, yeah. I mean, first of all, I'm asked that question all the time. And second of all, it was sort of one of the questions behind my trying to understand the history. There's um, probably at least three good reasons. Sometimes I think I say five, but I don't know if I remember all five this morning. But anyway, <laughs> the first the first good reason, well, actually, there's two contenders for the first. One, I have to say, and it's partly why the book is called Collective Courage, because unfortunately in our capitalist, racist society, when people, even people who are just doing co-ops and not black people, but particularly when black people were trying to do co-ops, they often, very often, too often, were sabotaged by either white competitors or white supremacists who didn't want blacks to be able to succeed. So too, too many of my examples have problems with either actual physical sabotage, meaning the place was burned down or the members were harassed or killed, um, lynched or whatever, or economic sabotage where um, the banks colluded not to support a co-op or um, the white community, you know, uh, boycotted it, that kind of thing, so it couldn't succeed. So, in fact, most of the quote-unquote failures were because of some one of the one or two of these kinds of sabotages. So we do have both, you know, economic, racial, et cetera, sabotage in a society that doesn't want alternative models to be successful because then it shows that we don't have to have capitalism. So unfortunately, that sort of so part of it is the ideology of capitalism that people don't understand, learn, or know enough about co-ops as an alternative model. We don't study it, learn it. People don't know how to do it, and then there's the actual um, physical sabotage of people trying to stop people from doing it. So those are, I guess, the two contending number one, number two reasons. So the first, the first reason is sabotage. The people don't want it either because of capitalism. They want capitalism. They don't want an alternative and racism. They don't want blacks to be successful. And the second is that people just don't know about them. Right. The education. We don't educate ourselves because partly again, because of the ideology of capitalism, but we don't, we're not, we don't know enough. Sometimes we don't even know that the model exists. Sometimes all we've heard about the model is that it doesn't work. That's when I first started talking about the model. That's what everybody told me. Oh, they don't work. You can't use them. And and people told me, well, black people don't know how to cooperate, which, of course, is just totally wrong. But that's the underlying sense that people have. Well, you know, National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program just to get the information out. Uh, right. That's the one of the main, main reasons for having this program on, and that's why we're so glad you're on. And, and we're really thankful for Chuck Snyder and the folks at NCB for uh, sponsoring this program. So the third reason why there aren't more right. then, Yeah, the education is a big reason. And then um, sort of an education piece, but a little bit more on the business side, the third reason would be we don't have – uh, good strategies for how to run co-op businesses. Or I shouldn't say we don't have good strategies. Again, we don't have good dissemination of the strategies. So we actually know now, especially um, in the late 20th, early 21st century, the things that make cooperatives work well, developing trust, figuring out how to work democratically in terms of how to come to decisions consensually, how to operate, um, manage by committee, how to um, make sure people are continuously educated in the learning community so that the co-op can keep growing as it, as new issues come up and new strategies are learned, that kind of thing. But certainly in the past, we didn't always know what all those good business strategies were for co-op businesses, and often, again, people didn't weren't exposed to them or weren't taught them or weren't didn't know how to gain that information. So it's sort of another level of the education thing, but specifically about the business model itself and how to make it work well. And strategies for coming to consensus, we've been building and developing those over the years, so they weren't always in place early on. So those, I guess, would be the major things. And finally, 
the one that most people in the business world think of as first would be capitalization, not enough money up front, um, often because, especially in the black community, the people who want to do a co-op usually don't have a lot of savings or money to put in, and yet you have to have some equity in there. You have to have a way to figure out how to um, get loans or uh, donations or grants, and sometimes it's hard, especially, again, in a system where people either don't understand or believe in cooperatives, it's hard to then get people to invest in them. You know, I got my MBA from Stanford, and, and one of the things I've, I've said over and over again, nowhere in my two years there that I hear the word cooperative, yeah. not in the term of cooperative model, cooperative business model. And I was okay. absolutely amazed. Um, I, I spoke, uh, there was a White House briefing in 2012, and I had the pleasure of being there, and I said the same thing to a group of 150 cooperators and some White House staff. Mm-hmm. And a gentleman there said, did you know that Leland Stanford, Leland Stanford, who started Stanford, he was a railroad baron, so he was a capitalist. Right. But as a senator, he had written laws to create worker co-ops. So somewhere he got right. the wisdom oh, or the the knowledge. And so it was like uh, he also wanted Stanford when he started Stanford about the same time. His son had died, and he sort of had a transformation of of, of – wanting to create the Stanford University and create worker co-ops. So uh, it was just amazing that that folks don't know about them. And here you had somebody who was trying, but Stanford doesn't teach it at all. Teach it. Yeah, that's, and that's a problem throughout the country. We, are, we have very few business schools who teach it. Most economics departments don't teach it. The best places we have right now are actually ag co-op Um schools, agricultural co-op schools, and then consumer co-op, consumer education often will teach cooperatives as a strategy for consumer control. Hmm. But then, yeah, but yeah, it's a real struggle, but we're getting better, right? We've got some places around the country now that are actually teaching co-op economics. Well, you know, you, we have to take a break in a minute here, uh, our first break, but you got Capitalism is a reason. Capitalist, racist, sabotage. Uh, education comes up twice, not education yeah. from a standpoint that people don't know about co-ops and then education don't know how to run co-ops. Right. And the, the fourth one is not enough right. money. So you need capital, and that's what I was trying to get to. Uh, Leland Stanford had, had said get, a, get a rid of capitalism and go to cooperative, and I think you need both. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, <laughs> But is how do you get both to marry together because too much of the capitalism, which I talked about, I think, last week, um, the people that have the money want to make more money and they want to create laws to give them more money and not, not have people get money. Right. Um, well, there's actually lots of examples of them coexisting. Okay, we're um, going to take a break. We'll be right back and, cut and take up this subject as soon as we get back. Please okay. do not touch that dial. News updates on the web at WOLDCnews.com. You know, information is power, and this is the reason that the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program to give you the information about cooperatives, so that if you take this information and put action to it, then you can have the power. At the at Greenbelt Homes Co-op, I saw a sign that said that co-ops give people the tools to control their own destiny. Mm-hmm. So in in co-ops, you get the tools, and that two those tools are education. And what Dr. Jessica Nimrod, uh, Gordon Nimrod, had just told us is that the four reasons that people that co-ops don't work, two of them is lack of education, lack not knowing about co-ops, and then not knowing how to work them so that they can be successful. Um, Jessica, thank you so very much for being on this show. You have this book is full of information, um, but at that White House conference um, briefing on co-ops, I had come up with the conclusion looking at HUD. HUD spends most of its money to create apartment buildings. Mm -hmm. And um, so I came up with the people that own the apartment buildings are wealthy people. Poor people don't own apartment buildings, and therefore they can't create wealth. Um, And so I had come up with that the rich, particularly in today's uh, political, economic, political uh, system, uh, they give more and more money to the politicians, and the politicians, therefore, will create 
um, programs uh, and laws that will help the rich. Benefit them, right. And uh, so I I was thinking that's one of the reasons you don't have affordable housing co-ops because affordable housing co-ops, for the things that we talked about early, benefit the people that's 50% or below the median family income and uh, not the wealthy. So therefore, if you don't have these programs that will create, put money into affordable housing co-ops and perhaps other kinds of businesses that would give the wealth to the masses of people. Does that make sense to you also? Yes, absolutely. I I think in affordable, you know, the housing stuff is a real huge issue. We don't want tenants to own their own housing, and right, we want to use housing as a way to make money for the rich. I think, you know, there are good models for how, as you know, as how the co-op housing can help. I'm actually working with a group in D.C., one D.C., organizing neighborhood equity, and one of our strategies is to help tenants um, to, to take over their buildings and to turn them into co-ops and to help teach them how to run their buildings as a co-op, own and run their buildings as a co-op. So, again, I think a part of it is we just need the political will, right? We need to figure out how to how to take the take politics out, you know, away from the wealthy and make it work for the moderate and the poor, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that sort of goes back to your question about whether co-ops can coexist with capitalism or what. I actually believe we could move toward a whole cooperative commonwealth system and we wouldn't need capitalism. But until we get there, I totally agree that co-ops can exist with capitalism. In fact, they're existing with capitalism right now in the U.S. Some of our largest farm businesses are cooperatives. Um, And there's, you know, actually a large cooperative movement in the world. Italy and Spain and Canada and France actually have strong, huge co-op sectors that are right there holding their own with the, with the um, capitalist corp- corporations. So I do think that they're all viable. I think it's really about political will and making sure we have, we care about, right, care about the, the have-nots and the people who have less and want to do something to help them. And actually, it's not just help them. The one thing about co-ops is they help themselves, like the quote the quote you just gave, right? Mm-hmm. That's one thing, you know, even some conservatives like about co-ops is that they see it's people helping themselves. And in some ways, some people even see it as private ownership. It's just collective private ownership. It's all, uh, Chuck Snyder, when he was on the program, he's the president of NCB. He said co-ops are very simple. They're people helping people. <laughs> that's that's his real simple uh, quote. But for people out there that don't know what co-ops are, co-ops are any business, any business that you could think of could be cooperative, and that's owned by. It depend. It gets to who owns it, and if it's a business that's owned by the employees, it's called a worker cooperative. If it's a business that's owned by the people that use the products or services, it's called a consumer co-op. And those are the main two, but there are others. Particular farmers come together and they buy products together, get a cheaper price. And they're called purchasing cooperatives, and then sometimes they get together and they sell their products together to get to, to different markets and better pricing. And it's called a marketing co-op. So those are your main four, but you have different different variations. Sometimes you have a worker cooperative and a consumer cooperative together, where both will own um, the business. Let's go to your part one: early American, early African American cooperative roots. What are those roots? What 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 did you find out in this section? So here again, this was some of the surprise, right, that as early as the mid to late 1700s, African Americans were practicing economic cooperation. Most of it was what we would call what we call mutual aid societies, where groups of people who already know each other um, collect dues in order to help each other pay certain things. They started out with burial societies, sickness and health, hospitalization, widow and orphans. So everybody puts in a certain amount of dues, and then whoever needs it from the group is able to take it out. So that's a sort of a precursor to what we consider the formal co-op businesses we have now. Even the Underground Railroad um, we talk about as having been a kind of cooperative venture because of all the sharing of resources that had to happen for that to work. 
Um, and then, you know, I, I, I rely heavily on W.E.B. Du Bois for some of this early history, who actually considered joint stock ownership of businesses among African Americans to be a kind of economic cooperation because it was a way to pool resources to own a business. In those cases, it wasn't necessarily a democratic business, which is really what a co-op is about, that democratic way to own something. But it was the beginning of sharing resources, having viable businesses. But then also by the 1800s, we were actually creating uh, official co-op businesses, um, not just the mutual aid societies, but they were morphing into co-ops, into mutual insurance companies, which are co-ops, credit unions eventually, um, and worker co-ops, consumer co-ops. So that by the late 1800s, we actually had uh, an African-American co-op organization, the Colored Farmers Alliance and Cooperative Union. We had um, the early labor unions in the 1880s, which were fighting in the progressive movement, were also integrated, and they were promoting worker co-ops as a way for labor to actually control their own workplace, not just to try to argue for better jobs. And those early labor unions actually surprisingly were connected to the co-op movement as well as were integrated, both things which then, uh, what do you call it, split by the 20th century. The labor unions were very racist and were not allowing blacks in, and there were so many of them had given up on the co-op movement. In the 1880s, there was this integrated movement, and they were very much under attack. That's partly why they split off, because it was very difficult for them um, to even operate either as integrated or trying to do the, um, the co-op uh, cotton gins and things like that. Also, early farming organizations, again, 1880s, 1890s, into the 20th century. Uh, African-American had co-op farms, co-op. Uh, what they call them exchanges, where um, you would uh, deposit your money so that another African-American could borrow it to buy, to buy a house instead of having to use a white bank, which was more likely to foreclose on them. They would buy uh, tractors together, sometimes buy land together, buy supplies together. Um, so lots of organization going on, particularly around either at times a very – political activity or times of um, economic problems. So they use the co-ops for economic survival, and they use the co-ops to support their political activity and part of their political fight for economic independence as well as political justice. Well, it sounds like when we talk about what we need today, it's the same thing. It's, we're talking exactly. about economic political systems and coming together. And yeah. um, Frederick Douglass was very active with co-ops, too, in the 1800s. Yes, I don't have as much about his activity. Um, that's why I keep telling people, I, you know, I need to write a second volume, and, <laughs> you know, I keep learning new things and finding new stuff. I found out the other day that Martin Luther King was trying to do a credit union. So um, that's why somewhere I say that pretty much any, especially in the 20th century, but even in the 19th century, almost any black leader we can talk about um, somehow dabbled in co-ops, either was a member of a co-op, promoted co-ops, studied co-ops, um, tried to get their organization to support co-ops, something. It's very hard to find a black leader who wasn't somehow connected, involved, or promoting co-op development in the black community. It's so fascinating because... Again, in my, I have two master's degrees, and nowhere in no, in none of my education, whether it's high school or college, and I went to a historically black college, that that this came up, and it's it's so unfortunate, um, and that's the reason I'm volunteering my time to do this show, is I really would like people to get out and to know about this 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 yeah, model. It's really great that you've got this show. Um, it's just another extension of some of the work I've been trying to do, and terms of really just getting this out, right? Originally, I just wanted to document that we did something in this area. And as I said before, I had no idea it was going to turn out to be so much information. Um, and, you know, I've just really skimmed the surface in some ways. There's still lots more people could be discovering. I'm, I'm now trying to get people to do their own research about their own 
neighborhood, co-op, region, or whatever, because there's just so much more we could uncover. We'll be right back. News updates on the web at woldcnews.com. Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Welcome back, everybody. We have online with us Dr. Jessica Gordon-Nimrod, who has written a book, Collective Carriage, and it does take carriage um, to start a business, to run a business, and sometimes to fight off folks that don't want you to be successful, particularly African-Americans in our history and even today. I would contend that some folks still would not like to see us be successful business persons. Um, for a whole bunch of reasons, a lot of it economics. They want to keep the money for themselves too often. Um, Dr. Jessica Nimrod, let's go back to... Oh, sorry, it's Nemhard. I guess I should correct you, right? Appreciate it. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> because, okay, Nimhard, that makes better Nimhard, sense the way yeah. it's... Way it's thank yeah, you. Okay. thanks. <laughs> oh, and I, I want to get this in because I've taught for 12 years of my career, 11 at the college level, and I really want to congratulate you on getting um, full professorship. Oh, uh, thank that, you. That is yeah. not easy, and I totally appreciate it. That means you've been working very hard. Thank you. I have, and um, it, it feels really good to, you know, get to the pinnacle of my profession. And it says a lot, so uh, congratulations again. Um, and this study, I would assume this study and this book helped you to get there because Absolutely. you've uncovered a lot of great stuff here. Um, what, going back to what what kind of black study circles? Um, what using educate? How did how did people use education in in these cooperatives to help develop families and help push the the political and economic agendas for black Americans? So another actually surprising, I guess everything's been surprising, right? Another surprising <laughs> thing in this research was that basically every black co-op that I found something about started with a study group, either a study circle, a study effort, whatever. Sometimes they studied for a year or more before they started or opened a cooperative. Sometimes it was just a couple of meetings. But everybody recognized that they needed to come together. Um, sometimes they actually started out coming together just talking about what the problems were and then coming to the idea about a co-op and then educating themselves about a co-op and then starting a co-op. So the study circle, study group, education in that sense is also has been essential. The other thing that I noticed in some, like there was a um, – one of the co-ops in Gary, Indiana, during the Great Depression in the 30s. They're a perfect example of this. Um, Consumers Cooperative Trading Association, I think is their name, in the 1930s. They first came together. They started meeting at the high school, the black high school. Some of the teachers, the principal, and some other community members talking about the fact that all the banks had left their community. They could barely afford food and gas, et cetera. They started learning about the co-op. Movement. I think they even may have studied some co-ops in other communities. They um, put a class into their night school program on cooperative economics that became the largest subscribed night school class in its history at that time. And then they created a women's auxiliary from the work, from the study group. And the women's auxiliary is actually the one uh, credited with having pushed through the actual opening of their co-op store. They opened a branch store. Another two years later, they opened a credit union and a gas station. 
And when uh, the interviews of the people involved all talk about how whenever things started to lull, things looked like they weren't going on, they reconstituted their study group. The women and the women's auxiliary kind of pushed everybody and said, we got to do this, keep going, keep going. Um, they had the largest black grocery store in the country in 1936. Their co-op was the largest black, at least as far as they could tell. So they really did well, but their real, you know, their whole beginnings as well as their ability to keep going was based on their study circle and their study programs, their education programs, and the work they did um, in advocacy groups. We've got other co-ops that actually have participated in policy advocacy locally and statewide in order to make sure the things they needed for their co-ops and for their people happened. So um, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives from the 60s on has been involved in advocating for farm bills and other policies to support black farmers and co-op development. Um, Cooperative Home Care Associates in the South Bronx was part of the movement to make sure that Medicaid paid for home care workers because then that was their business, home health care. And if they could get Medicaid payments, that meant they could up the rates in the industry for home care so that when they asked for living wage work, it wasn't a big gap in the industry because, of course, in the industry, the wages have been very low. So there's all kinds of different types of advocacy, policy development, education, promotion that happened because, again, people would come together, say they had needs, start to study the co-op model, and then use the co-op model to advance the other needs that they had. Well, I started one program off by saying that if it wasn't for the cooperative model, the civil rights movement as we have known it in the 60s would not have happened or definitely would not have happened the way that it did happen because of the education that folks in the civil rights movement got, uh, whether it was Rosa Parks or Martin Luther King or Stokely Carmichael, they were going, getting this education about what does it, you know, what does it mean and how do you work together? Right. Um, so that that sort of fits that this advocacy groups, uh, getting education, uh, figuring out what they needed and then figuring out how they can get it through, I like this high school night program in right. Gary, Indiana. It's you got to have the education piece. And that's one of the right. reasons and I have fallen in love with co-op model. That's yeah, yeah. And also the advocacy that comes from learning how to cooperate economically with people, it just spills over into the rest of your life. So I also did a study. It's not as much in this book, but I've written about how when you look at what happens to people who are in cooperative businesses, right, because you learn how to share information, how to make decisions together, how to develop leadership, et cetera, you don't just do it in your co-op. You start doing it in the rest of your life. You become more involved in your, the PTA, your children's school, or you join another organization, or you run for office, or you get on the board of the local credit union, or, you you know, anyway. So it's all those things you learn how to be a better citizen. You get more civically involved. You get your family, some more of your community civically involved. So there's all kinds of these social capital spillover effects and other effects, not just, you know, that you could have a viable economic business. Also, because co-ops tend to buy locally and support local activity, they stabilize economic activity in a community. They help um, uh, resources to just keep recirculating in a community instead of going out of the community after they've been used once. Um, so there's lots of these other kinds of, impacts that then that's why I sort of talk about the goal is a whole cooperative commonwealth because if you could think about co-op businesses in all the different sectors and then all the other ways that co-ops support community and human development you know once you get a significant mass of co-ops happening you get all these other benefits and things flourishing you know I this has come up several times on a program and that there was a lady on by the name of Ruthie Wilder, who's the president of a housing co-op in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And she had said that that's exactly what happened. The things that she learned in the co-op, and she's a, a, a she worked for uh, the rapid transit uh, system, I think driving a train in Baltimore. So she didn't get this education in college of how to run a business. She got it in going to 
classes and running how to to run her co-op. She said right. it it went to her personal life that mm-hmm. her she could run her family better. Her her right. the economics of her family worked out better. I really thought she was going to tell me, and she did not go this far. Was it also helped her with her relationship with her man that she could learn how to work better together. <laughs> she didn't go quite that far. But yeah, I, we need that's a whole other study we need to do. <laughs> I think you're probably right, but nobody's been talking about that yet. Okay. <laughs> but you do learn, especially when we learn how to come to consensus in a democratic organization, right? That's got to yeah. spill over in how to work with other people, especially intimate people, intimate in your life, right? Yeah, and, and you know, raising children is similar. It's, it's, yeah. It is a give and take with children, particularly if you have educated them to think uh, independently, they're yeah. going to challenge you. So how do you learn how to work together is, is awesome. And then we had a guy named Papa Sin uh, from Senegal, mm-hmm. and he talked about how the people in the co-op, they start, he moved from the farm to one of the cities, I don't remember which one, and, and on the outskirts, and they needed housing, so they started a housing co-op. Then they need transportation to get people to work. And mm-hmm. so they started, they got some buses and started a transportation. Then they needed a school, so they started a, a co-op. He said as the community needs things, they started. But yeah. he was saying that the people, in the, in the, if you look at the politicians, that most of them in that area came from the co-ops. Yep, yep. The Federation of Southern Cooperatives talks about that, too. They have a lot of their staff and members who then went on to for political roles, got elected in places. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? The education spills over. Now, I always come back to why there aren't more and what forces <laughs> keeps us from having more because of all of the good that, that these co-ops have done throughout history and even today. Right. Um, okay. Uh, Somebody on the program said I had a sinister view in that I believe that the people in power, those one percenters, um, don't want people to know about co-ops. Oh, I agree. I think that's one of the biggest problems. As I said, they don't want people to know about it, and sometimes they're willing to sabotage the ones that are there, right? They withdraw money from it. They don't, you know, they get banks. I mean, we still have examples. You think that's still going on today? I thought and all the banks agree not to give them. Or we have this problem now where the banks say for worker co-ops, right, the banks won't give loans because they have to have a single, Sign what is it called, a, you know, they have to have one person responsible for the collateral or whatever. And in a worker co-op, there is no one person, right? It's the collective. So we're even for credit unions, trying to get credit unions to give loans to worker co-ops. They have to have waivers. That they can, you know, waive that requirement of having a single, I forget what the term is, mm-hmm. um, you know, but that they can lend to a worker co-op as a collective. So we st- we have things built into our system that are anti-collective ownership and recognition of the collective. Most of how we operate is all still requiring single proprietor, a single name or person to take all the responsibility to be the holder of the whatever Um for years, we had um, women, right, couldn't, needed their husbands to co-sign. I had one person tell me in 2005, I guess it was, that she still had to get her husband to co-sign a loan for her that she was taking out to put her share of the business, to put into her share of the business. But the loan had to come with her husband co-signing for her. You know, that's within the last 10 years. So we have all these rules, regulations that are based on this, you know, patriarchal, capitalist, sole, you know, individual model that even when we got people that agree we need co-ops and stuff, they have these stumbling blocks. I thought you were talking about when we first started about these blocks, that that was in the past. No, they're still, some of them are still existing. I know. (laughs) You know, and, you know, even black credit markets, right? We still have that subprime problem. We finally recognized it when we had the housing crash, but that doesn't mean it stopped, right? Mm-hmm. But most black businesses, black landowners, black housing owners um, have to pay a higher interest rate to get a loan because of the racism and the structural and uh, racism in our country. Even when they have the same or better credit ratings and uh, income history and all that kind of stuff. 
Uh, and so if you end up paying more interest on a loan, that means less money can go into your business or less money to help you continue to make the payments, yeah. et cetera. And you that's know, going on right now. We have to take our final break, you know, Dr. Gordon Nimhard, I knew, knew that you had way too much information for us yes, to cover in one hour. <laughs> but we only have one more segment to go, and we'll come back. Please don't touch the dial. We'll be right back. News updates on the web at woldcnews.com. Information is power, and that's why National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program. NCB's mission is to help cooperatives grow by supporting and being an advocate for Americans' cooperatives and their members, placing special emphasis on serving the needs of communities that are economically challenged. And as we were took the break, a lot of the African-American, uh, Native American, Latino American communities are economically challenged. So NCB was formed in, 19, in the 80s to provide financial assistance, financial um, loans and so forth to these communities to create co-ops. And they have a tough job to do. They've done it well, I think, um, because most banks, they're only looking at one thing is how much capital do you have to pay it back. Um, And more often than not, African-Americans have not created capital. The system does not, which we've talked about in the past, doesn't give us a lot of ways of creating we're spending most of our monies just to live so we don't have ways to nor do we have knowledge on how to create this capital so in our last 15 minutes dr gordon m hard yes n-e-m-b-h-a-r-d yes what do you want to leave our listeners with what well you know um my son keeps telling me whenever I give these talks that I have to remind people that, yes, the history is important, and the history is important to show we have a legacy and we've been able to do it, but we really need to focus on the present and the future and talking about how we can keep this legacy going, how we can do use more cooperatives. And so he likes me to not just focus on the past. So actually you and I haven't focused as much on the past as I sometimes do, um, and to talk about the future. And one of the things for me about this book is it shows that we have and we can do it, right? So there shouldn't be any blocks. I mean, we know what the blocks are. We're starting to understand the blocks, but that shouldn't be stopping us because we know we can do this. We know the co-op model is a viable model. We know that African Americans have used it over and over and over again. Um, we know what the success, how to do it successfully, you know, good education, figure out access to capital, but even just pooling scarce resources helps, um, leadership development, uh, trying to get policies changed to be supportive, but even without the policy changes, things that we can do. Um, having The thing we didn't talk that much about is having strong organizations to support Every period, there's like three periods that I found the most active for black co-ops. One was the 1880s, one was the 1930s, and one was the 1960s and 70s. And in all those cases, the thing that's the same is strong black organizations that were helping to support um, cooperative development and black leadership. Um, Things that were different were the 60s were actually not an economic problem. But they were a problem of, um, you know, strong black political involvement. Mm-hmm. The 1880s and the um, Great Depression were economic problems. So in some ways, people were looking more about survival. Um, but they were also looking at black leadership development and black ownership and how to propel blacks in a time when, uh, you know, society was sort of against them. But this understanding of the role of deliberate cooperative development strategies with black organizations is really important. The 30s had the Young Negroes Cooperative League. They had um, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which is a black union, but they were supporting co-op development as a way to keep hard-earned black union money in the black community and doing more supports for the rest of the black community. In the 60s, we had all the black civil rights movements and the Black Panthers, the, um, the SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, 
uh, even the Nation of Islam, right, were all supporting and doing black co-ops as part of their strategy, even though we learned more about them from their political and social activities. So I think understanding that we need strong organizations to support this, we need good education, and we just need to know that it's not a model that's foreign to us or alien to us, but it's a model that we've helped to develop through the centuries and that we can embrace, I think is very important. Well, I think your son is very wise. He <laughs> yes, probably got that very, from his mom. <laughs> he got it from his mom and dad. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Thanks. So it, it's like, okay, how, how do we take the lessons from the past? And I, I have I've reached out to the Urban League and to, um, oh, I just had one of those senior moments, <laughs> but, but it's trying to get to that. Now I, I, I have a sense of why we need those and if can we get it. And I, I was just listening to Minister Farrakhan talking about repatriation of trying to get money for blacks for all of the things that has happened to us. And I thought, well, maybe getting to him. I did not know that they had that history uh, um, yeah. of, of going there. So it's like, how do we get these organizations or create some organizations? Uh, Al Sharpton was the name I was looking for. I, I reached mm -hmm. out to him to try to to get him. He seems to have a lot of political power today in his with his uh, right, TV show, right. too. Yeah, he would be a great one, actually. I hadn't thought about him lately, but we do need to. I mean, I've been actually, that's part of my mission, right? is I've been trying to talk. I actually gave some presentations several years ago at National Urban League Black Economic Conferences. So I've been trying to get the word out. I think having finally published this book is even helping more because I am luckily doing a lot of book talks all over the country mm -hmm. to a variety of organizations. Often it's existing co-op organizations, but sometimes it's black groups who just want to know more about it. But I think that's what we need to do is arm them with some of these, quote, facts and figures, either how their organization did support this in the past or, that you know, the thing we were talking about before about all the different benefits, right, of co-ops in communities, and then also some simple strategies of how to just start, right? I think that's the other thing people think, okay, it's a great idea, but how do we start, especially when everybody says it's so hard to get the money, right? That's the other sort of lesson learned from the black history is that people just started, right? They just came mm -hmm. together and started talking about this stuff. And then they tried, they realized, okay, if we need this amount of money, how do we get it? They would start, you know, back to the mutual aid society, just collecting dues, right? Everybody put in a dollar every time we meet. You know, everybody tried to raise $100 this year or $200 this year, you know, and then get matching funds, right? That's the one, that's one of the great things about the co-op model is this, because it believes that people should put in equity, even if it's just as little equity as they have or as much as they have, you can then leverage it. Because once everybody has put in something, then you can go to a bank or go to a, a foundation or another lender or a quiet donor and say, you know, we've all put in this much, we've raised this much, we've got this business model, we know what we're doing, we just need this money and we can do this, right? Especially nowadays with the um, social investing. Mm -hmm. it's, it's relatively easy to get people who are willing to take, uh, what do you call it, to have either to be a quiet investor or to be a long-term investor. So they're investing as much in the social mission as in getting some money return on right. their investment, right? So you can get them to, you know, to accept a lower than commercial interest rate on their loan. You can get them to accept five or ten years before they get paid back. Um, because they're willing to invest in it as a social venture, too, right? And we've got a lot of examples of that as well. So there are ways now that we can think about putting these packages together of how to raise money, especially once, you know, as I said, the co-op model is helping ourselves first, right? So mm -hmm. once you see that everybody put in equity as much as they could from their own pot, you pool that, and then you take that and leverage it to get money from other places. Well, I would like to work with you. Your goal is very similar to mine, and that is to get Good. people to understand this. And I would love to see putting together a package. I gave a presentation to a group of um, Appalachia education folks mm. in, in Appalachia, where I grew, I grew up in West Virginia. And okay. so I've uh, been on a board of a, trying to get more and more um, folks in, in, in this board in West Virginia to go to college. 
Um, so I, I gave them a presentation on this co-op model, and they were shocked, amazed, surprised. So it was just lack of knowledge about it. But I would love to see this piece on what, what other organizations have done in the past, like the Urban League. What are the lessons learned or, um, you know, what are the benefits of co-ops? And then how to start. If I would love to see that piece and, and, and either present or right. come somewhere where you're Yeah, I have it. a document on the benefits of co-ops. I can make sure. I did a white paper on that, um, mm -hmm. which I can make sure you get. And then we probably need to put together this a short briefing on sort of what some of these organizations have done in the past in the co-op movement. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can put those together and figure out how to move from there. You know, time is almost up. I love talking about the co-op principles. You've hit on a number of them, volunteer yeah. and open membership, democratic member control, members' economic participation, which you just finished talking yeah. about, autonomy and independence. They have to have control. Of, yep. of the of the place and number okay, five is my business, favorite right. yeah it's their business number five is education training and information yeah continuous and then the sixth stop. one is cooperation among cooperatives yeah and that's you can whole co-op uh commonwealth idea you have these interlocking co-ops that help support and um, supply each other and work together in, an, in a region or among a community and the seventh is concern for community and you've already talked about that too is yep. they're built in uh, Dame Pauline Green from ICA, International Cooperative Alliance, said it's in cooperative DNA. You don't need a social responsibility group. It's in their DNA to be concerned about the community. We have about a minute left. <laughs> Any parting wow. words? Time that, went fast, yes. didn't it? <laughs> yeah, and you have a lot of knowledge. I thank you so much for sharing it. I love what I'm learning, and I've learned several things from you today. Um, well, I'm very excited about working with you on promoting this more. Hopefully, you'll have me back to talk to your audience again sometime soon. Once a month? Or? <laughs> <laughs> as much as we can, as okay. much as we can. That would be great. Um, and, yeah, I just really can't say enough how much I think this is just a fabulous, doable, viable model that we should all be trying to figure out how we can participate in and help promote more. We do need to get more policies passed. Some states don't have good co-op laws. Some states don't have any funding mechanisms to support co-op development. We need to work on that also. Okay. Well, I thank you for being on. Uh, we'll be back next Thursday. Um, and we just have a, co well, a cooperative week working together with your family and friends to get things done in your community and U.S. and the world. Thank you, Dr. Gordon Nimmo. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Have right. a good weekend. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. And happy Black History Month. 1450 WOL.